welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's, uh, let's dig into God's Word here. We're in the second week of a four-week series on the church, and in this series, we're just seeing why we love the church. We're we're reminding ourselves of the reasons we love the church, and we're wanting God to stir us up for our love for the church. And it also is designed as a way to equip ourselves to speak to those who have a little less enthusiasm for the church than we do. Have you guys run into some people that might have a little less enthusiasm for the church than we do? This will equip you with some texts and just some ways of uh, sharing your love for the church, why you love the church. And we're looking at different metaphors in Scripture. The Scriptures define the church by a bunch of different metaphors, compares the church to a bunch of different things. Sometimes we're called a flock. Sometimes we're called uh, branches on a vine. Sometimes referred to as a body, an uh, olive tree, a temple. Last week we saw that the church is the bride of Christ. This morning in 1 Timothy 3, we're going to see that the church is a family and a pillar. Um, Take a look at 1 Timothy 3. Paul wrote this letter to the young pastor Timothy. Paul had actually sent Timothy to Ephesus to help him kind of get the church in order. And there was a lot of disorder. We're going to see that in a little bit to that church. Um, But he says in 1 Timothy 3.14, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, hey, I'm going to show up, I'm going to help you out there, but I'm going to give you a whole bunch of instructions on how the church is to be structured and how the church is to be run so that you'll know. And so that's what this letter is given to us for as well, is so that we would know these things. So the first answer to why we love the church, we can see from this text, we love the church because the church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. The church is God's family. And the fact, guys, that the church is called a family reminds us that the gospel is an adoption story. All of us have been adopted by God. We didn't start off as God's kids. Um, Everyone isn't a child of God to start with. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. The reason for that is ever since Adam's fall, um, human beings have been born into sin and with a, a bent away from God. And so Ephesians 2 says that we were, before Christ, we were without hope and without God in the world. But the amazing thing is that God had a plan to adopt us. God had a plan to adopt us. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because all three persons of the Trinity conspired together to make your adoption a reality. All three persons of the Trinity manifest their love to you by adopting you. The Father, we see in Ephesians 1, chose you before the foundation of the world. It's amazing, you know. Adoption is a great image for the gospel because it shows it's all God's initiative that he adopted you. He made a plan to adopt you before the foundation of the world. But there was a problem, right? It was our sin. There was a huge adoption price to pay. And so the son agreed to come into the world to pay that huge adoption price for you, his life for your sin. And then the spirit caused the adoption to actually happen, right? Because the spirit caused you to be born again, to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Suddenly you are alive to God and you believe the gospel. Adoption, guys, is the most personal way that the gospel speaks uh, about our salvation. Um, There's a bunch of different ways of looking at the cross and what Jesus did. You can think of the cross as propitiation. Propitiation meaning that Jesus took away God's wrath by taking it for us, which is an amazing truth. God is not angry at us. He is not wrathful towards us because Jesus propitiated. And we can look at the gospel as justification. 
that Jesus paid the debt for our sin and then gave us his righteousness, that we're legally right before God, we, that takes away our guilt. So the first one took away our wrath. Second one takes away our guilt, that we're, we don't have to be guilty before God because our sin's been paid for and his righteousness is ours. And the Bible speaks of, of the gospel and the cross being about redemption, that we were enslaved to sin, but Jesus' blood bought us out of slavery to sin, which is an amazing thing, and, and we're learning more and more how to walk in that freedom. But all those gifts, guys, as beautiful as they are and how much they like cause our hearts to sing, all those gifts were to give us the ultimate gift, which is adoption. That God would give us himself. That we become his beloved children, right? Because it's one thing to have the wrath gone. That's amazing. It's another thing to be justified and, and right before God. That's amazing. It's it, to be redeemed and to be uh, given that promise of freedom from sin. But it's a whole other thing to know that God himself has adopted you as his own kid. That he loves you as his own children. It's the most personal type. And it's so important to God that we would have the experience of adoption that the Holy Spirit actually causes us to experience that adoption. Um, if you look at uh, Romans 5.5, 5, it says God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given to us. That passage is saying that the Holy Spirit causes us to feel God's love for us, his fatherly love for us in our hearts. The Holy Spirit does that. He gives us a sense of how much God the Father loves us. That's a jo- one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. And that love that you're feeling, when you feel that fatherly love of God, what you're actually feeling is you're feeling the love that the Father has always had for the Son for all time, for, throughout all eternity. That there's a love that the Father has had for the Son throughout all eternity. And because you're in Christ, you experience his fatherly love for you, and it's the same love with which he loved his Son. The Holy Spirit does another thing. It's in uh, Romans 8, 15. It says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery falling back to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we call out Abba, Father. The Spirit does another thing. Not only does he cause us to feel the Father's love for us, but he causes us to have a love for the Father. And when he says that he causes us to call it Abba, Father, who called God Abba? Jesus, right? He actually, the Spirit actually gives us the love that Jesus has always had for his Father, he causes that love to come out in our hearts as we cry out to the Father. He makes that adoption a reality, something we can experience. Isn't that amazing? It's totally amazing. Adoption is the greatest gift of the gospel. We're not just saved from wrath. We're not just forgiven. We're not just righteous. We're not just freed from sin. We're adopted as his deeply loved kids. And I know that not all Christians always have an experience of that. They don't always feel that. Um, that's something that if you don't feel, you should really pray that the Spirit would give you. Because when you really get that, I mean, you already have it, but are you feeling it? Once you really get it, that God loves you like that, that he loves you as his own son or daughter, you're going to stop feeling all the time like God's annoyed with you, he's angry with you, he's frustrated with you, he's merely, merely tolerating you, he's displeased with you. When you feel that sense of adoption and his fatherly love, you're going to know that he enjoys you. He hears you, he wants you, he seeks you, he treasures you. That's what it's like to really have a sense for your adoption. Something you already have, but you suddenly know it deep down in your heart. And that's something the Holy Spirit does. And the church is a family of those who have been adopted by God. And there's a couple ways to speak about the church. The church is both universal and it's local. It's universal in the sense that that's all Christians throughout all of the world, all those he's adopted throughout the world and throughout time from the beginning all the way to the end. 
But there's also the local church, which is the local household of God that we're actually a part of. That's what this is right here. That's what we're a part of together. And we know that Paul is talking in 1 Timothy 3 about the local church because he gives all kinds of instructions about the local church. And the local church is really the only place you can have a household. When we think about the household of faith, the only place you can experience the household of faith is in an actual local church, right? You have to have a family of God that you're a part of to really experience the family of God, right? Is that what the local church is? The local church is a family. And guys, it's super important to know what the church is. I think that's why God gives us all these metaphors for the church, is so that we would understand what is the church. Because understanding what the church is is going to really inform what you do and how you treat it, okay? In our culture, there's a lot of confusion about what the church is. I mean, when I say our culture, I mean our Christian culture right here amongst us. It's really common in our Christian culture to think of the church as a business, or as a show, okay? And we all do this. We all tend to think because there's a Christian culture that reinforces this, and there's a way that churches even reinforce this to where we think of the church as a business or a show, a business that provides services to religious consumers, or a show that provides worship experiences to spectators. Probably have heard that term before, worship experience, you know, as if it's some sort of a show for spectators. But guys, I'll guarantee you, you can look for it. If you find it, let me know. The church is never described with the metaphor of business or show in Scripture. You won't find it, but you will find the metaphor of family. And, and what if we really believed, guys, and many of you already do, that the church is a family? Well, what we believe it is is going to guide what we do. You're going to start treating them as a family. Take a look over at 1 Timothy 5. You just have to flip over just a little bit. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. He's talking about the interactions that you would have with the church as you see it as a family. You see a bunch of people in this room and you think of them as mothers and fathers, as your own mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters maybe as kids. The local church is a family where we see each other that way. Even Paul had that relationship with Timothy, right? A couple times in the letter, he says, Timothy, my son. Timothy's not his biological son, but because of his relationship in the church, Paul and Timothy had this relationship of father and son. Isn't that beautiful? It's so cool because God in his wisdom and his love has provided us a church family so that we don't have to try and figure this out alone. You know, we don't have to try and figure out how to, how to walk with Jesus alone. We don't have to figure out how to deal with life alone. He's provided us a family of the church. So why do we love the church? We love the church because it's the family of God, right? And uh, because it's family, it will be messy, right? Because that's not an image that just tells you like, oh, then it's going to be simple. No, 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 no. Nobody thinks that, right? Nobody thinks family and thinks simple, right? It's going to be messy. We can actually see that in this letter, if you guys haven't already. Read through 1 Timothy this week, and you can see what it was like in Ephesus where Timothy was ministering. It was messy. I'll give you a few of the messes so you can see them. See if you recognize any of them. There were people spouting weird theology. That's chapter 1, verse 3. There were people obsessed with myths and speculations. Chapter 1, verse 4. There were people that really loved vain discussions. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6. There were legalistic people misusing the law. Chapter 1, verse 7. There were others that were teaching that it wasn't right to marry or to eat certain foods. Chapter 4, verse 2. There were people that really enjoyed silly myths. Chapter 4, verse 7. 
There were people who refused to care for the needs of their own family, chapter 5, verse 8. There were idlers, gossips, and busybodies, chapter 5, verse 13. There were people that had an unhealthy craving for controversy, chapter 6, verse 4. These were the people in the church, okay? These were the people in his, like, missions context. These were the people at the potluck. Imagine the potluck, you know, especially with the controversies about food, but all those other things, too. Maybe you guys have seen these problems. It was messy, and it's messy for us as well. And that makes sense, guys. The reason why it makes sense that the church would be messy, because I know a lot of you guys are like, I can't believe that happened in the church. You know? I just can't believe people were like that. They sinned against me. And it is a terrible thing. I don't want to downplay that. Some of you guys have real hurts. But we should kind of expect it to be a mess. Because what we believe about the gospel is that God adopted a bunch of sinners out of the world, And then he doesn't just say, hey, here's some books, read those by yourselves. He puts them in a community and says, now live as a family. That's going to be chaotic, right? That's going to be messy. You got to kind of expect it. And I'm just saying that to myself, you know? When things happen, you're like, you should have expected this, you know? We are not in heaven. We have not been glorified. This is the way it is in this time, right? We're sinners that have been brought out of the world. On top of all the struggles that we have with our sin, we also have... All the sufferings that this fallen world brings upon us as a body. That's in Timothy as well. He talks about how to care for sufferers. The church, guys, is a family of both sinners and sufferers. Sometimes we're sinners and sufferers at the same time, right? And uh, Paul wrote this letter so that, so that he would know how to run the household of God. Look at, again at verse 14. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing to you these things so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. If you look a few verses up from there in chapter 3, you'll see how he structured the household of God with two teams. There's two teams that kind of organize the church. It's the elders and the deacons. Um, the elders are also known as pastors. Some of you guys might not be familiar with the term elder, except for people that maybe come to your door that look way too young to be elders with name tags. But elders in the, in the Bible are also pastors. It's the, same, it's the same term, elders and pastors. They're in charge of the ministry of the word. Okay, I don't say they, but it's one of me, too. The qualifications are in verses 1 through 7. Biblically, only men can be elders. They have to have exemplary character, as you can see in those qualifications, in their home lives, in their regular lives. Um, They have to be able to teach. The New Testament pattern, guys, is for every local church to at least have two of them. It's really common in our culture to have kind of the solo pastor, you know, the solo pastor with the cape kind of deal. But in the New Testament, it always speaks of elders in the plural, so every church should, if at all possible, have more than one elder pastor. God's designed that the church would not be run by a solo pastor, but by a plurality of elders. Um, plurality of elders that, that are equal, that, that share the, the duties of the pastor, the duties of that office, and have equal authority. In our church, it's uh, Josh and Gabe and I, hopefully more in the near future. Plurality is amazing. Even if it wasn't in Scripture, it would be an amazing idea, but it is in Scripture. It shows God's wisdom. Because when you have a plurality of pastors and not just one, you have accountability. Like there's not, you know, like three of us each have one vote. If uh, the two of them voted me out, I'm voted out, right? There's no person that has absolute authority. There's accountability. Um, There's ability to share diverse gifts. You know, nobody has all the gifts to be in that office, and so we share gifts. And it spreads out the work, which is amazing. Because you'll notice, like, extremely unhealthy things happening to pastors. Have you noticed that? Do you think pastor is one of the healthiest occupations there is? 
These are some of the most unhealthy people in the world, right? <laughs> and part of that is because in our culture, we've assumed that one person's going to kind of like be the one, you know? And so it spreads out the work. Um, it's really common in our culture to have what's called the Moses model, where, you know, the pastor is kind of in the place of Moses. He goes up on the mountain, I guess. There's no real high ones around here. Goes up on the hill, hears from God, gets the vision, brings it down to the people, all that kind of thing. That didn't even work for Moses, Go back and read Exodus. It didn't work for Moses either. In fact, God actually supplied a whole bunch of elders for him to share out the load. The New Testament does not describe pastors as priests. Uh, does not describe them as being solo, some sort of, you know, superman. But describes that the church should be run by a plurality of elders. It's biblical. It's wonderful. The elders are responsible for the ministry of the word. The elders are responsible for making sure that the church is built around the word of God. That's guided by the word of God. You can see in uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, if you just flip over there, Paul's instruction to Timothy, who was acting as a pastor there, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And we can see from the rest of 1 Timothy that often involves correcting people and bringing them back to the gospel. So seeing the problem that's there and showing them how the gospel is the solution to that. For those people in the early part that were into weird theology, right? One of the things, or vain speculations, or they were off on all these trails of weird kind of spirituality beliefs. What they need to be shown is that the gospel's better. A lot of times people get on these weird theological rabbit trails and they're obsessed about these kind of secondary issues because they've really gotten bored with the gospel. And the gospel is not boring. <laughs> the gospel has infinite levels of layers and, and beautiful things to feed your soul. And so, and so that's the role of the pastor with those people. For those who are stuck in legalism, it's to show them that the law was actually meant to point them to Christ. Law wasn't ever meant to be a way to make yourself right before God, but it's meant to point you to Christ. For those who are trapped in sin, the role of the pastor is to show them that the gospel gives them forgiveness and freedom. It's the gospel, guys, that creates the kind of family that will free God's people from sin and self-righteousness. It's only as we're centered on the gospel that we both get freedom from sin and self-righteousness. And what's really neat in 1 Timothy here is that Paul kind of leads the way in saying, we're all sinners. Take a look at 1 Timothy 1.15. I love what Paul says here about himself. He just throws this out there. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. That's good spiritual leadership, by the way, is to say, hey, I'm the worst sinner in this room, right? Isn't that great leadership? That creates a kind of culture where people are not you know, ashamed to share their sin. They're not ashamed to let you know what's going on. They're, they're willing to be honest. And this wasn't Paul's kind of one-off thing. Paul earlier had said in uh, 1 Corinthians, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, he said he's the least of saints. And here he says he's the worst of sinners. And what's really neat is there's a chronology there. If you take the letters and you put them in order, Paul said in 55 AD in 1 Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. He's like, hey, I'm the least of the apostles. And then in 60 AD, so five years later, it's worse. His assessment of himself is worse. He says he's the least of saints. And then in 63 AD, three years later, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. So he's the least of the apostles. He's the least of the saints. And now he's the worst of sinners. What's going on here? This is spiritual growth. Doesn't look like it. <laughs> it looks like there's a problem here. But there's not a problem. What happens in healthy growth is that we see our sin more and more. And we see God's grace more and more. 
And so what happens is, is we, as we see, if I did, could add a diagram here, as we see our own sin, as it seems worse and worse in our own perception as we're, we're looking at it, we see God's grace bigger and bigger. And the thing that joins us too is the cross, right? As we see our sin deeper and deeper and we see the grace of God bigger and bigger, the cross looms bigger and bigger in our hearts. That's healthy growth. That's healthy leadership is to say, I'm the worst of sinners. For those of you who are, you know, husbands in this room, people that are leading a family, that would be really helpful for you to realize. You're the worst of sinners in your own context. All of us can lead better by thinking that way. All of us will grow better by seeing that. The more we internalize the gospel, the more, like Jack Miller will say, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, and yet in Christ we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. That's Jack Miller. He said, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, okay? So that's that seeing his sin more and more. Like, we don't even get the depths of our sin. You're like, I'm a sinner. We have no idea, right, the depths of it. And yet, in Christ, we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Like, we think, oh, yeah, I know God loves me. You don't even know. So beyond what you know. The gospel creates a culture in the church where we don't have to hide our sin because we're all sinners. But the gospel also reminds us that we don't have to stay that way. Because the gospel is the good news that we get both forgiveness and freedom in the gospel. The cross of Jesus took away not only the penalty of our sin, but the power of our sin. And so as we learn to walk in that, in this kind of gospel culture, we can be honest about our sin, and we have hope that we don't have to stay in it. So why do we love the church? We love it because it's a family of God. It's a gospel culture where he makes us more like him. So he has a plan for our mess. And I know sometimes some of you, you come to church and you've communicated this where you feel like, man, I don't, even, I don't even know why I'm here. I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't know if you guys realize that. That's a very common thing people coming in that door feel. You might look at them and go like, oh, everybody thinks they're better than me. And they don't. <laughs> it's actually a very large amount that it took a ton of faith or whatever just to come in those doors because they feel like they're not worthy to be here. It's one of the reasons why we have confession of sin in our service. You think like, why do we have this? This is a downer. It's such a blessing that somebody that comes in the door that's feeling the weight of their sin to hear us all confess our sin together and all acknowledge that we are ourselves the worst of sinners. And then to receive that assurance of grace so that we can move out through the service knowing that like it's taken care of and he's got us. He's got a plan for our mess and that plan in- includes the local church. Our Father's given us this church as a way to, to care for us in that area. The Lord has also given us a church to care for us as sufferers. So remember I mentioned that the church is sinners and sufferers. And for that, we have a team called the deacons. Um, the deacons are a group of leaders that are mobilized to lead us in, in helping with ministry of mercy, to mobilize us in the ministry of mercy. Biblically, deacons can be men or women. I say that because if you look at 1 Timothy 3:11, there, if you kind of look up from our passage, where it says, likewise, their wives... The Greek where there is actually likewise the women, so there's an interpretive choice on whether to write wives or women there. Um, we believe that refers to female deacons. So there's men and women could be deacons. There's other evidence like in Romans 16, Paul calls Phoebe, who's a fe- that's a female name, calls Phoebe, oh, well, you know that because you watch Friends. Um, <laughs> but Paul uh, calls Phoebe a deacon, and so it's no- another evidence for deacons. There were tons of female deacons in the early church. The custom kind of faded, but, but deacons are called to mobilize the body for mercy. They organize us to care for the church, for those who are hurting. And you guys have seen that, who have been with us for a while. You've seen how they'll coordinate us to bring meals, 
to, uh, to arrange childcare for people that need it, to give financial counseling, to pay bills. They totally do that. They do that often. Our deacons have a large fund from which they can give financial assistance to anyone who needs. I know when I say that, you guys are like, oh, people are going to take advantage of that. They don't, actually. It's, like, incredibly hard to give people money, which is strange. A lot of times people won't share, like, the deep problem that they're in. And uh, when they finally do, you know, and you try, you know, the deacons try and give them money, they, they don't want to take it, they want to give it back, all that kind of stuff. So it's a real wrestling match. Have you guys ever been out to eat and you're like, have that fight about who's going to pay the check? Like, I'm going to pay it. No, you're going to pay it. You know, there's this whole wrestle. It's that kind of thing. It's like, no, 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 you, you, you. Okay. But they have this large fund and that's there to help those who have needs. And uh, as you can imagine, our deacons, they're gifted with wisdom and discernment and compassion. Um, right now, we have three of them. We have Ishmael and Christina Nunez, and we have Dave Hampson, I think is back there somewhere. But those are our deacons. Um, hopefully, we'll have more. The deacons mobilize us to care for one another's needs so that we can really be there for each other, right? That we can really love each other. I know we all want to. Don't you guys all want to? You think about the church body, and you're like, you want to be there for people. You want to help people, but sometimes you just don't know how, and that's what the deacons help us with, is like organizing that. Here's how you can help. Here are the things you can do. Those of you guys who are on our, um, on our email list are already aware probably of the, of the great trial the Hunley family is going through in our church, and uh, Tyler's actually with us this morning. Tyler and Lauren have two daughters, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and they've been a part of our church for uh, at least two years now. And recently, Lauren was uh, diagnosed with stage four melanoma, and um, she has masses in her lung and in her leg, and um, she has one in her brain as well, we found out this week. And uh, the deacons sent out an email to arrange meals. Um, we're going to arrange, you know, child care if they need it. Right now, they don't need it, but we could help with that. Actually, like, buying their groceries, things like that. Um, and we sent out a link for giving and stuff. And I just want to thank you guys for, like, your amazing response to that. You guys are like such a blessing and um, just super generous people. You guys care. But that's what the deacons help us with, right? It's like you might, if you're just kind of like a Christian, not attached to any particular church, and you kind of saw a post on social media about somebody going through something like that, like there's something you can do to help maybe. But like being a part of a church together and really having people that can coordinate us helps a ton. And so we just ask you guys to pray for her healing, pray for the family. We're going to pray for him after service. He's here with us this morning, and um, we're going to be there for him, right? We're going to be there for him because the church is a family, right? Church is a family. And it's such an amazing gift, guys, that God gave us the local church. I feel like in my past, I mean, I really have not been super into the church in the past, um, surprisingly, to you guys probably. But um, earlier on, we had a, a, a huge Bible study. It was like a college ministry, and I always loved doing that, and it was super fun, and, and, but I always, like, didn't really have a desire to be a part of a church. It was like, that was enough. That was our church, you know. We're all, like, young, and, like, that's not a church because it's, like, all the people you handpick that you like, you know. <laughs> not that it's not, but, but God's, God's church is diverse, right? It's diverse in age. It's diverse in personality and gifting and stuff like that. Like, God brings a, a, a diverse group together, a bunch of college-age people, like, it's easy that you're getting along. Your unity is explainable, <laughs> you know. And uh, I remember that we were going through Hebrews, and uh, I didn't mean to share this, but now I am. We were going through Hebrews, and uh, I was teaching Hebrews a little bit like, it was super long Bible studies, ridiculously long. 
And it got to the part where it was like, uh, the passage that says, like, obey your leaders. You know, those who have watch over your souls as well to give an account to God. And I taught on that. And, and I remember afterwards, I went in the kitchen. And I was talking to my wife. I'm like, hey, what would you think of that? And she's like, I think we're not doing it. And I was like, dang, I knew we weren't doing it, you know? It was like, <laughs> you know, that's why I was kind of nervous about it. But that led to a whole, like, realization that God's church is a gift. And it didn't feel like a gift at first. But I'll tell you guys, man, it feels like a gift now. It feels totally like a gift now. You know, if, if that's where you're at, just trust God in the fact that the church is a gift and lean into it, and he'll show you that it's a gift. It's a gift, guys, to have the local church so his kids don't have to walk in the dark times alone, you know? We have the privilege of being there for each other. We have a privilege of being a family together. So why do we love the church? We love it because it's family. Second reason why we love the church is in a metaphor in verse 15. Check this out. It says, verse 15, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And you think, okay, well, this one's not as, like, cozy, you know? The church is also a pillar and a buttress, okay? And for those of you that are architectural, a, a pillar uh, supports things. You know what pillars are. I don't have to explain that. A pillar kind of lifts, holds things up. And a buttress kind of comes along and, like, supports a wall. And those of you who are engineers and stuff, I did the best I could with a Google search, but that's what you have. So the church is, Paul's saying the church is a pillar. It holds something up. What does it hold up? It holds up the truth. So the church is not just called to care for one another, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing. We also have a calling to care for the world. And the way we care for the world is by holding up and holding out the truth to them. So they can see it. You guys, if you look at the world right now, what do you think as far as our truth level? Okay. If, if, if our culture was like 100% would be like, hey, everything you hear out there is true, and zero was like, you can't trust anyone or anything, where are we at? Somebody said 10? Anybody lower than 10? No, we'll just take 10%. It's extremely low. And what's amazing is that God has determined that his church family would be the ones that would go like, here's the truth, check it out. And you think, wow, that's amazing, huh? So if you guys are really concerned about the culture knowing the truth, God says here that his church is the pillar of the truth. We're the ones that hold the truth out. What is the truth? He gives an example in verse 16 of what the truth is. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Now that's a very poetic way of talking about the gospel right? The truth that we put out is the truth about Christ and the gospel, what he's done. This is a very kind of poetic way of talking about his incarnation and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his message of free grace that's going out and his advancing kingdom and his glorious reign. And as a family, we have the privilege not only of caring for one another as a family, but of holding up the truth. Isn't that a great reason to love the local church? Like if you care about truth being in the culture, if you care about the advance of the gospel, you absolutely have to care about the church. It is the pillar of the truth, right? And I know it looks kind of like, wow, seriously, that's a lot of responsibility for us. But that's what God is doing, and that's what he's done throughout all of church history. It actually has worked quite well. Um, it started off with like 120 people, and it's really blown up. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's like a billion people. So, so it's going well. He knows what he's doing. We're, we're a family gathered together to do that. And I sent some information out about uh, membership this week. And one of the things I sent out was our church's statement of faith. 
And I love that statement of faith. It's a beautiful summary of what scripture teaches about the truths we're supposed to hold up. It's really convenient for us to have some sort of thing to say, hey, here's a list of those truths. And um, it's not a statement we wrote, but it's a statement that we love, and so we adopted it. And I just want to give you some of the precious truths that we're to hold up. I just want you to like kind of think of like the beauty of the truths that we're to hold up. And some of these I'm going to pull from that statement of faith. So what kind of truth do we hold up to the culture as, as the church, as this body of believers? We hold up to the world the truth, as our statement of faith says, that there is only one God eternally existing in three equal divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect both in his love and in his holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Is that a truth we should hold up? We should hold that up to the world, right? They need to hear that. They also need to hear the truth that there is truth, okay? And that that truth is found in this book. Like there is a completely trustworthy source of truth, or as our statement of faith says, God is a speaking God who by his spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures. Like they need to know there is truth, right? So they don't spend the rest of their lives bumping around in the dark like we have before we found this book and saw that like this book speaks to all the things we need to know. This book is authoritative because it's God's very words, And so if it's God's very words, of course it's authoritative. It's inerrant because it's God's very words. It's necessary to know him and the depths of who he is and to know how to be saved and to know how to enjoy him. It's sufficient and then it has everything we need for life and godliness. Like this has everything we need. And guys, it's also savory. (laughs) This is something we need to tell the world, that this book is delicious. This book is savory. This book isn't just helpful. This book is wonderful. Read Psalm 119 and just hear how the guy that wrote Psalm 119 just loves the word. The more we dig into, the more we say this is a savory thing as well. We need to hold up the the truth to the world that God created human beings, male and female, with the amazing dignity of being the only creatures made in his image, that we were given the honor of stewarding his creation and ruling over it for him. We need to give them the truth that sadly the first people tempted by Satan fell into sin, that all people are born sinners, alienated from God, and headed to judgment. That explains a lot, by the way. People hear that and they're like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, it used to be that like liberal theologians and stuff said, oh, you know, people, they just can't buy this whole sinner thing. And it's funny because G.K. Chesterton said, I don't see why people would doubt the doctrine of sin, the most provable of all the doctrines. I mean, it's just everywhere, right? And the Bible tells us why it is this way. It also tells us why the world is in the chaos of sin and death that it is. It's because of sin. But God, as soon as Adam sinned, he promised that one day he would send a redeemer who would save his people and restore the world. And then through the Old Testament, he showed us in a series of covenant promises what that Savior would be like. We need to show the world, we need to hold up as the pillar of the truth, that God has kept all of his promises in sending his son Jesus, or as our statement of faith says, the eternal son became human, the word became flesh, fully God and fully human, one person and two natures, and by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. 
He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sin, reconciled us to God. By his resurrection, Jesus Christ has, listen to this, been vindicated by the Father, broke the power of death, defeated Satan, who once had power over it, and brought everlasting life to all of his people. And by his ascension, he is forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. It's a truth they need to hear, right? What's another truth they need to hear? Well, then you also need to hear the truth that we have about the Holy Spirit. As our statement of faith says, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and by his power and, and mysterious work, regenerates spiritually dead sinners, awakens them by repentance and faith, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ, such that they are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Something they need to hear, Right? They need to hear the truth about the kingdom of God, that even right now, the kingdom of God is growing right in their midst as people are hearing the gospel and believing it and trusting in Jesus. Or as our statement of faith says, the kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates those through repentance and faith put their trust in him. Or about the church. You know, they, we need to hear, hold up the truth that the church is not a religious club or man-made institution. It's the community of God's people. Or as our statement of faith says, the church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, that's Lord's Supper and Baptism, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, her love for God and her love for the members of one another and for the world. And we need to hold up the truth that there is a wonderful future for this physical world. I wonder how many people know about this. People are like, where is the world headed, right? The world is headed to actually a wonderful, glorious end. Our statement of faith says, we believe in the personal, glorious, bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in a real heaven for those who are in Christ, a real hell for those who reject him, and that that real heaven will not be a misty spiritual place where we will exist as ghosts, but will be a materially restored world made new where we will live together as resurrected people. All sin and suffering and death removed, and there we'll enjoy the presence of God in the world perfectly ruled by Jesus Christ. Those are the beautiful truths we get to hold up. We have such a good job. Think about the job of the church. The job of the church is to tell people that. We have like amazing news. We have amazing, helpful things to share with the world. That's what the church is. Why do we love the church? Because it's the pillar and buttress of that truth. Think of all the misery that's out there in the world that's solved by people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. As members of this church, you're agreeing as a part of God's family to uphold those truths to the world, truths they need to hear, truths we need by the way. All those truths, what's neat about this is that all those truths we're to share with the world are actually the food for our own souls. Everything I read there is, are the reasons I get up in the morning and the reasons I stay alive. How about you? Is that your food? Is that your sustenance? What's so cool is that we get to savor Christ and all those great truths about him, and as we savor them, we call the world to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why do we love the church? It's the family of God. It's the pillar of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the church, and I don't know if we all need to repent, but I do, and I just want to confess, Lord, in the ways that, that I have not valued your church and seen the gift of the body, and Lord, just how recently you've shown 
just how wonderful this gift is. It's you've given us family. You gave us family. You could have adopted us and just had us bumping around alone, figuring things out, but you put us in families. You put us in families of people that are not like us. It creates all kinds of interesting things that happen in relationships. And, and those two are redemptive, Lord, that you're using our relationships as a, a workroom for, for your gospel work in our hearts. That you're making us more and more like Christ through one another, through the flawed um, efforts of one another. Lord, it's your spirit that makes your people is the only thing that explains this group of people that's gathered here this morning on a day that they lost one hour is that this is the church of the living God. The life comes from you. There's no other place that could come from. The life comes from you. We just pray, Lord, you'd make us faithful as your kids. Lord, you love us no matter what. We just pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you and just gratitude for that. And we pray, Lord, that you make us faithful to each other, that as we call one another brother and sister, we call one another family, that we would make good on that. And we just thank you for all the ways we see that happening. And we pray, Lord, too, that you make us faithful to the world. It seems a little overwhelming that you left this task with your church to be the pillar of the truth. And yet we see throughout church history it obviously works. You know what you're doing. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that through us, that we would have a zeal for making known the truth about you, what you're doing, and your son Jesus, and how they can be reconciled. We just pray, Lord, make us not only faithful to that, but just excited about that. With the most amazing news. You've given us the most amazing job. And so we pray we do it with our whole hearts, with great joy. And Lord, as we take your supper we pray you'd feed us and strengthen us. Lord, we pray that it would be true food and true drink to us as we commune with your son Jesus through it. And we pray, Lord, that it would strengthen us to, to love one another more, to serve one another more, to care for our neighbors more. And we pray, Lord, as we worship, Lord, that you'd be pleased with it and that our hearts would be thrilled to sing to you, our Father who's adopted us, and to Jesus Christ who paid the debt, and to the Holy Spirit that made the whole thing activated and real to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.